electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Teresa Kang Lau, Blue Marble Pictures founder and CEO, executive producer of Pachinko on Apple TV+. It's really good to, to talk to you, and I've seen the first few episodes. It's beautiful. Um, I guess, I, I, I mean, we could start with sort of just the timeline of the beginnings. It's been so long since you read the book, clearly, and began shopping it around, and so much has happened in Hollywood regarding diverse voices since then. Uh, could you just talk about the difference between the environment then and the environment now? Yes. Um, so four years ago is when I first read the book. And to take you back a little bit, when I was at, uh, at college at UCLA, I studied Asian American studies and anthropology. And that's when I first heard about Zainichi Koreans, which are Koreans who live in Japan. And they remained in Japan during Japanese occupation and beyond World War II. And I, I heard so much about the Korean diaspora uh, in, in the US, but really not about Japan. And when I then, years later, first read the book, Pachinko, there was this moment of recognition again. Um, but at that time, four years ago, it was very hard to sell any project that had all Asian-led cast. That was a period piece that required a certain budget level. And definitely that was in Korean, Japanese, and English languages. That was almost unheard of. So now where we are, you know, with Parasite, which is an amazing film, Minari, um, Squid Game, of course, uh, I feel like our timing is appropriate. But when we first started the project, it was uh, unusual. Right. And I got to say, I mean, your market intelligence, having spent so much time uh, at, at, at WME, you knew the landscape. What gave you confidence that it was worth pressing forward, not just to get uh, maybe additional meetings or bids, but to press for the kind of budget that would allow you to tell the story in this way? Well, for one, the, the only way that it could be told in the way that uh, we're envisioning it is that it did need to have scale and scope. So I'm, I'm a big believer, you know, from my time at WME being an agent, that the most personal stories and the specific ones typically feel the most universal. Um, director Bong Joon-ho from Korea also talks about that a lot. And I'm a big believer in that, I always have been in, in, uh, in my career in business. And I felt that this story told by our showrunner, Su Hyu, and later our directors and our cast really hit home with that. Um, but I do believe that my time as when I was at WME and being an agent, my job is to understand the marketplace and it's also to understand what kinds of creative projects could resonate. Um, and while this had all the potential hardships and challenges, I did believe that our showrunner's vision for it at that time felt incredibly um, transportable. And I think the story transports you. And ultimately it's a story about family and it's about the sacrifices that one generation makes for the next. And I, I just believe that this would have been, the audiences were ready for this. 
Was it evident to you uh, when you first met with Apple uh, that, that, that that kind of conversation was going to be different? I did. I, you know, they had recently opened their doors to buying new projects and they, they had yet to release um, shows and films. So it was early days of Apple. Uh, and I'm so excited for, you know, their Oscar weekend um, with Coda. And I think that they're just continually um, just really hitting the cultural resonance with their projects. But we had um, a couple executives there who, who understood the show intrinsically. Uh, there's an executive there named Michelle Lee. She's Asian American. She understood it. She's also a child of immigrants herself. Um, and uh, Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich, who run the service. Uh, Zach's wife had actually known about the book by the time we had pitched it. And so, and he felt very compelled by the show as well and just felt it was very universal. So we feel very lucky that Apple understood it. Coincidentally, we did have four other offers when we took it out to the market and we just felt Apple was the ult ultimately the best home for it. And they, they've been incredible supporters since. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Fascinating. And of course, uh, Coda uh, made a lot of news recently, as you said, with, with Best Picture. I wonder if you can briefly talk about what you think Apple's aspirations are um, in not only telling diverse stories, but trying to do it uh, with, with polish and maybe some of the economics behind it. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about how Squid Game changed the game from being able to hire talent that maybe was not as expensive and then being able to monetize it all around the world as well. As it relates to Apple, you know, I think um, you'd have to ask them about what their aspirations are. What I always feel for them is that they really care about creativity and um, they care about real artist stories that come from a personal place and a passionate place. At least that's been my experience uh, working with them the last few years. Um, so we've just found them to be great partners every step of the way. Um, and they're, they've actually been uh, very supportive on a creative level because again, this show having never really been done before, there are other places that maybe could have been more stringent creatively, but they actually gave us a lot of breathing room. Right. I have to imagine in the time you were developing this, uh, as you said, you had, uh, we had Squid Game come along and somewhere in there was Crazy Rich Asians and then yes. Parasite and Minari. And, and you guys must have been saying to yourself, uh, for whatever reason, the entire marketplace is moving to us. You know, I've been waiting 20 years for the culture to catch up with my personal taste. Definitely when I was an agent, I would put together projects for my clients and I always thought, oh, this one may not land. You know, we're, the, the culture is not ready yet, unfortunately. And I believe that we are here now. And I, I do think it's because of these OTT streaming platforms that have um, equalized the playing field in some way. Um, you know, Korean cinema has been excellent for decades. It's just now that people are able to take notice because of uh, access through OTTs. So I'm very grateful for that. But I, it's why I've had confidence in Korean cinema, filmmaking, music, um, and Korean dramas. Korean dramas actually have been popular in the community for uh, many decades. So I think for the other producers and myself, we had that, we're all cinephiles. My father owned video stores and I, you know, my parents were working all the time. So I watch a lot of movies. So I feel like I've had the greatest filmmakers were my babysitters in some ways. 
And when you grow up loving film and you grow up knowing about Korean cinema and Korean dramas and Korean artistry, this wasn't a surprise to us, weirdly. Um, it was, we were just waiting for the world to catch up, if that makes sense. Right. No, I, that makes sense. I mean, the evolution was happening. I have to imagine you agree, though, that the pandemic, I mean, just put fuel on top of that fire in that it, it, it sent people home in search of, in search of new stories um, and, 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 and forced them to discover things that we're not going to reverse. We're going to look back at that period 20 years from now and talk about what a game changer it was for Hollywood, right? I believe so. I think with the pandemic, with viewership being at a at, at an all time high, I think that opened up moments for uh, people to discover new things. And I think you know, Parasite, Squid Game, and I definitely feel that way about Pachinko. Are they feel very universal? They're deeply Korean, but they also feel incredibly. Wherever you're from, you can relate to what those characters are struggling with. I think with Pachinko, it's very much about a family. It's about multiple generations. Um, I think when you watch it, you, we hope that you think about calling uh, a family member or thinking about them. And, you know, you mentioned Crazy Rich Asians earlier. When we were just about to pitch it, we knew that Crazy Rich Asians was about to release. And we we're really hoping it was going to work. Because if you look at the history of Asian-led cast major studio films, so almost 30 years ago, there was Joy Luck Club, and that was a success. And then it took another 25 to 26 years <laughs> for another major studio to make Crazy Rich Asians. They're very different in subject matter, of course, but it took that long for another studio to invest in an all-Asian-led um, cast. And so we were praying that that would work. Even though Crazy Rich Asians and Pachinko are different stories as well, it was important in... Uh, in the marketplace of if it was going to work. And I believe if Pachinko uh, is continually successful, it'll open up other kinds of stories for other producers and filmmakers to tell. It's Unfortunately, we're still building on our own narratives in, in the Hollywood marketplace, but I do feel Hollywood in general and audiences in general uh, are more open to different kinds of stories now um, and who plays the, who played those leads. That's funny. I hadn't I hadn't thought that far back to Joy Luck Club, but that's that's incredible. It, do you think it was because um, the stories were not being written, or was there always a population of, of of screenwriters who were who had those ideas, but there was just no receptivity from from the marketplace? I definitely think it's the latter. I think that there's been so many artists, Asian American artists, and other uh, diverse artists who've been wanting to tell these stories. I've heard many of them and they, they weren't able to get made. Now, one of our direct, actually both of our directors, um, Koganada and Justin Chan, they come from the independent film space. So they've actually been telling a lot of um, stories and films already about um, Asian Americans and different stories, but outside of the major studio system or outside of the major streamer system. Now, some of their films ended up getting acquired by major studios, which is great, but there has not been a lack of desire and lack of um, interest in telling these stories from um, filmmakers. So I feel now is a more of a moment to get those stories made. Right. I mean, and, and, and again, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to add that, you know, I've dedicated a career over the last several years and my future to uh, 
Uh, I always talk about how do you take something that feels foreign and make it feel familiar? You know, I, growing up Asian American, oftentimes um, you, I, you feel like an outsider. And my life's work is at my, at my production company and my management company is really taking what someone might consider not part of you and making that feel uh, familiar. Right. No, that's definitely been a hallmark of, of the work that's, that's increasingly being done. Speaking of which, um, talk about your aspirations for, for Blue Marble and what kinds of stories you want to be telling in the, in the year or two ahead. Um, definitely stories about uh, the human spirit. I, we always talk about what is a saying about the human condition. A lot of my clients um, have that, those conversations as well. I do tend to uh, respond to things that, is it artistic, but is it also commercial? Does it have the ability to hit a mainstream audience? And those are definitely the kinds of clients um, I tend to gravitate towards as well. They're, there's something artful about their approach. And as an artist, they, want it, they have something to say but they also have a desire to impact a large audience. And so I think the things you'll see from Blue Marble over the next few years is things that definitely hit that, that tone. And, you know, my company's name is called Blue Marble, and it's, a, it's inspired by the name of the famous photo of Earth from the 1970s that was taken out of a space shuttle. And at the time when I launched the company, um, it was two years ago at the start of the pandemic, in Los Angeles, I remember um, there were helicopters circling my house and it was during um, the protest for Black Lives Matter. And I was just thinking about our world is continually transforming. And when that photo of the blue marble was taken in the 70s, that also was a transformative time in our country. And when you look at that photo, it's really about the story. I wanted to tell stories that connect us and unite us. And when you look at that photo of Earth, we're actually all in this journey together. And what I am very excited about is what are the frontiers ahead of us? What are the stories ahead of us? Where are we going as humans? And at the core of that, the storytelling really needs to feel intimate um, and specific. I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. The way you describe the kind of clients you've been drawn to reminds me, I was just going through Riz Ahmed, uh, Ryan Coogler, Gal Gadot. I, I just wonder, as for your own story, how you could have easily gone on <laughs> being a high-powered agent with, a, with an A-list client base. Can you just talk about what it was like? I mean, I don't want to say walking away from it, but definitely changing course. Yes, I, I mean, of course it's, you know, at that time I felt this desire to be closer to the storytelling process. I've always wanted to produce uh, when I was an agent and I had, I really wanted to I think there's nothing more powerful than story. I think, Carl, you, you also work in a world of storytelling. And if we, you know, when I was working at my dad's video stores as a kid, I, I learned so much about different kinds of people through films. And I, I, I'm a big believer that um, Hollywood can also export empathy. And I think, you know, leaving one career Everything I do now as a producer and as a manager is built foundationally on what I learned um, as an agent. And I actually think it makes me, it gives me my own strength and my own um, uh, superpower in some ways. That's different from other producers and other producers have different strengths and superpowers. Um, but yes, it, while it was very um, tough for me personally to leave, um, they're all still my friends. I mean, all my colleagues that I've worked with for 17 years 
Um, I still have so much kinship with them um, and I still rely on them. Um, and my former clients, you know, my desire definitely is to find projects with them as well because I, I know a lot of their tastes and what, what kind of things that they want to do and messages they want to share. So to me, it's, it's, it's literally just another extension of those relationships, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I don't feel like I've left them behind, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What about best advice to those who work in mail rooms and want to get ahead? What would you say? Stay curious and always follow your instinct. If there's something that, I say this to my clients as well over the years, whenever someone shares an idea with me, I'm like, that's really hard. You know, artists are so used to hearing that's not gonna sell, that's not gonna work. But whenever an, a client or artist or a young person would say to me, I'm really thinking about this, it's staying with me. You know, I can't stop getting it out of my head. I always say, write that one or go after that one because it's really, there's something specific about it that's hitting that artist that those are the ones that tend to resonate, I found, uh, not just in the marketplace, but with audiences. So that's how I would yeah. say, go with your gut. Yeah, their success is because they are hard uh, to a large degree. Finally, we, we've been asking um, all of our guests and our you know, EPs and showrunners about Content budgets, which is a huge topic for us here at CNBC as we, you know, as we sort of uh, evaluate the companies. And I wonder if you think we're entering a period where budgets get more discipline, where uh, the streamer budgets get cracked down for, for a variety of reasons, competition, uh, cost management, or is the demand so inelastic that it's going to continue uh, the way it has last few years? I think... This is just my personal feeling. I think that streamers ultimately are, it, it's not an everlasting budget. They're, you know, even though the content arm of a media company or a different company in, in the streaming uh, world, they have specific budgets. And to think that it, they're gonna spend irresponsibly, you know, or to overspend. I don't think that's going to be the case. I do think there's still going to be shows and films with majorly high budgets, but the concept and the production team has to justify that in the storytelling. So I think, you know, larger genre pictures um, or films may continue to get that budget, but it has to be warranted. I don't think, um, I think that all these streamers are spending responsibly, if that makes sense, based on the idea. Yeah. Right. And then, um, do we have news on a season two? Um, we're really hopeful that it's going to happen because we have so much more story to tell. Um, and we hope to, we hope to have that news shortly. Um, you're going to have a lot of excited viewers uh, if and when it happens. Um, but we'll encourage everyone to, uh, to take a look and I continue to dig through it myself. It's been a real Thank pleasure you. chatting with you. Thanks, Teresa. Likewise, Carl. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.